Special thanks to our newest sponsor. Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188, and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thiol Boost, which is a liquid thiol precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. What you're about to hear originally aired in May of 2019. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. I remember coming in one day after Christmas. And uh, it was extremely cold in our cellar, and five of the ten tanks were leaking all at the same time because <laughs> uh, uh, we we were not uh, monitoring the humidity. This week on the show, Jace Marty tells us how his 159-year-old family-run brewery makes Berliner Weiss. You'll hear all about the various production methods for this unique beer style, as well as all of the complexities, trials, and tribulations that come with the territory. August Shell isn't your typical modern craft brewer. The brewery is actually older than master brewers. Give us a little background on the brewery and its Berliner Weisse endeavors. Yeah, first a little bit about the brewery. We're located in Newell, Minnesota. Uh, we are the second oldest family-owned brewery in the country. We were founded in 1860. Um, we have grown quite a bit over the years. We now make about 120,000 barrels of beer a year. And I know with the, the latest rankings from the Brewers Association, that puts us at 25th in the country. Um, our primary focus is on lager beers and, and uh, German beers, I guess, in general. We're very proud of our German heritage, and, and we really made that a focal point of the beers that we produce. But uh, starting in 2012 was when we started our Berliner Weiss program. Cool. And how long have you been there? Uh, I've been there my whole life. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, it's family business, so I kind of grew up in the brewery. Um, I've been working, uh, you know, even before high school, I got to do a lot of uh, crappy odd jobs that my dad uh, wouldn't make anyone else do. So I got to uh, 
learned the ropes that way. And then, uh, through high school, I worked, I worked in the bottle house. And then once I got back from the college, uh, from college, uh, I've been working full time at the brewery. So awesome. 18 years now, not a bad way to grow up. Yeah. Okay. Well, like, uh, like most beer styles, the variety of products under the Berliner Weisse umbrella has become more expansive and complicated over the years. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, what does Berliner Weisse mean to you? Yeah, um, in, in a little bit more historical context, uh, for me, Berliner Weiss, um, it was kind of a, a pet project that started from home brewing and also um, with the unique thing that we had at the brewery. And then we had these old wooden tanks um, and we were coming up on our 150th anniversary at the time. This is in 2008. And I really wanted to use these wooden tanks that we still had in our cellars. We had two of them that were still in the cellars at the time and we hadn't used them since the early 90s. Uh, 1991 is when we, we decommissioned them. And I th- just thought it'd be really cool if we could make a beer in it again, uh, just as part of the, the anniversary celebrations. And we really didn't know what we were doing. So it, uh, it took a long time uh, and we kind of missed that window. But that's when kind of shifted focus and in, in Berliner Weiss was kind of the new uh, end goal with that, with that, with those tanks. Um, I had been into home brewing sours at home because uh, obviously we couldn't do it at the brewery. And uh, Berliner Weiss was just this obscure style that I kind of, uh, fell in love with, became obsessed with, and, and thought it would be cool to, revi- you know, now that we had these tanks restored, uh, to make Berliner Weiss in these tanks. Um, it was relatively unknown uh, at that time even, and um, I thought with our focus on German beers and German heritage that it would really fit well with what we're doing and, and kind of have this special, uh, unique product um, that we could uh, introduce at the brewery. Tell us a little bit more about the style itself and also how you learned to make it. Yeah, definitely. So Berliner Weiss, um, like I said, back, back then it was, is relatively unknown. Uh, I had read about it through, you know, finding little snippets here and there in books and, and from what I can understand, but, uh, I really, the, where I got my information from is from when my time at the VLB, uh, and my teacher, Kurt Marshall and, and Bert Gottmeier, uh, they were both the ones that really did a lot of the education. So, uh, a lot of this information comes from them. I just wanted to acknowledge that. And, and really I have them to thank, um, uh, for all of <laughs> what we've done here at shells. Um, uh, but it's a top fermenting beer, uh, traditionally made with barley and wheat. Uh, and it was, produced via a mixed culture fermentation. So Saccharomyces cerevisiae, just a top fermenting ale yeast, um, no real specific mention of it, but, and then the, the key being lactic acid bacteria. Um, these are low gravity beers, you know, seven to 10 Play-Doh and had a fairly high content of lactic acid. And then they were also, um, traditionally bottle conditioned. And with that, uh, was the use of a secondary fermentation yeast and that's Britannomyces. Um, and that really what gave that beer its um, characteristic flavor. Um, you know, Britannomyces is a, is a super attenuator, so it really dried the beer out. You ended up with a, a high, highly carbonated beer. Um, usually with the, the addition of wheat, you had a thick stable foam uh, head. And then you had this, you know, refreshing tart um, yeast, uh, you know, bread yeast kind of aroma to it that was like apple or cidery. Um, and it was also very flavor stable because of that high acid content. There's basically three different approaches to brewing Berliner Weiss. There's sequential, parallel, and mixed. Before we get into how August Shell does it, let's run through those possibilities. Yeah, so the the three different methods, this is kind of what I've 
um, for the sake of, of kind of explaining it to people, I, I try to talk about these three different production methods for Berliner Weiss. And, and these go back to when kind of the high point of Berliner Weiss, uh, turn of the century in the 1900s, when it was being produced by over 40 breweries just in the city of Berlin. And it was really, uh, you know, a very you know, in vogue type of beer, you know, right before, uh, you know, anyone that has ever read a history book knows what happens next. But, um, so yeah, a lot of this information kind of comes from the research that I could when, and research I could find. Um, so the first one, and I think this is the one that's probably most familiar with, uh, craft brewers today, uh, would be the sequential production or the Frank acidification method. Um, and so this method is what we know as kettle souring. So you take unhopped, unboiled wort, you add a pure culture of lactobacillus, uh, where you do your acidification inside the kettle. Once you hit your target pH or total acidity, you bring it up to a boil, you heat sterilize it, cool it back down you pitch a regular brewer's yeast and then fermentation is like a, a regular beer uh, and you package it there is no um mixed culture fermentation it addressed the difficulty of of having that uh you know potential spoilers throughout the brewery with with uh, bacteria and wild yeast uh you could finish it just like a regular beer and it was ready to consume quickly um and what's unique about this message uh method is that it was patented by a brewery, this, this Franca, and it never really gained popularity in the city of Berlin. Um, there are some old, uh, ads. If anyone's ever read, uh, Ron Pattinson's blog, I know he's, he has it where he, uh, it's listed in there where they were advertising the Franca certification method. And I believe, um, that brewery went out of business like within two years it was just because it lacked that characteristic aroma that you got from the other two methods of production. Is, is that why we think that didn't really catch on just because the aroma was different? Yeah, but what's unique about this uh, is that because it was written about, because this brewery had patented it, uh, it's very well documented in, in you know, the historical context, even though it never really caught on. It was kind of this weird anomaly that uh, it was written about a lot, never really used, but then when you try and recreate this traditional style and you start to do research, well, you think that this was the way that it was done. Um, and so it's kind of spun off into this whole new style of brewing here in the United States based on what we think is traditional, even though it never really was. And I think that's always kind of an interesting point I like to bring up in talking about the history of Berliner Weiss. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Kindle is obviously a well-known producer of the next method. So let's, let's hear about their approach. So this would be the parallel production method. And this is what people always think Kindle does is they Kindle sour, but um, that, that they kettle sour, but it's actually uh, what they do is quite a bit different. Um, they take unhopped wort and they split it. They do one uh, pure culture lactobacillus fermentation, and then they take the other half of the wort, boil it with hops, and they do a pure culture uh, yeast fermentation with a brewer's yeast fermentation. Then they blend the two together when they to hit their target pH or acidity, uh, and then they sterile filter it and package it. Um, this is uh, kind of based on the Barack production method, um, and it's usually about a 20% um, blend of, of that um, lactic acid fermentation blended with their regular beer. Um, you know, and, and it's just, it's in a sense like kettle souring where you're fixing your, your focus is on the, the acid level and you're fixing that level. Uh, but instead of heat sterilizing it, they're using a, a filter to, to sterilize it there. And then there's no additional, uh, bottle conditioning or re-fermentation inside the bottle. The, the beer is completely sterile at that point. Um, and that's from what I understand is, is the method that's employed by Kindle. 
You, you mentioned Ron Pattinson earlier. We had him on the show back on episode 71, and he was mm-hmm. pretty critical of the Kindle of Kindle and this method. <laughs> yeah, what, what's the downside with doing it this way? Um, I, I mean, I'm not going to say bad things about uh, Berliner Weiss breweries that are, you know, true breweries, but I think, you know, or some people's criticisms in, in Ron's is that it doesn't have that that full rounded bouquet that that was characteristic of classically made Berliner Weisses. It's it's maybe one dimensional um, and, and very focused on just the acid element of it. Um, and it's also kind of made to be mixed with syrups. Um, so it's extremely acidic uh, you know if you ever get a chance to have one unblended um it's it's very very acidic because it's made to be uh have that sweet uh, you know raspberry woodruff syrup added to it so you get this sweet sour thing going on almost kind of like an elko pop uh essentially um it makes for a, a very cool looking beer in a beer garden but um i think the purists will uh, disagree in the in the <laughs> the flavor of, of the that style of berliner weiss Okay. Uh, well, tell us about the third method, which is the sort of the classic mixed uh, production. Yeah. So the mixed culture fermentation method is, is one that was probably most widely used in Berlin and, and the one that people, uh, you know, historians or purists would, would say produced a true authentic Berliner Weiss. And this could have been, you know, done uh, any number of different ways within each brewery. But the basic thing is that you take a, a hopped, unboiled wort, you pitch a uh, mixed culture f- of yeast and bacteria. And then, uh, you know, after a short primary fermentation, you know, it's an ale yeast, so maybe a week, it goes straight into bottles for bottle conditioning. And, and with that, uh, you have your Britannomyces in there and that bottle conditioning usually, uh, you know, eight weeks or so. Uh, and that's where the characteristic flavors begin to start to develop. There's little to no warp boiling in this method. Why is that? Uh, it- because you want some acid production uh, hops are antibacterial um and so it's really counterproductive to you know boil it with hops because you're you're trying to make something that's acid that's why hops were used you know to obviously prevent uh bacterial uh spoilage you could say so um this is a way you know like belgian beers where you're using um very sparse amounts of hops or like in the case of belgians they're using aged hops where you're getting very small amounts of of bitterness contribution because you're you want the the bacteria to flourish inside this beer talk about the difference in in strategies some brewers are doing a a hold above 180 fahrenheit and others are actually doing a a a brief wort boil what's the difference in strategy there yeah, so uh, Dr. Schoenfeld, who did a lot of research, he was the director of top fermenting beers at the VLB. Um, he kind of championed that uh, even though you're not boiling it because of boiling, you know, precipitates proteins and that's, um, you know, you want this beer to have a very uh, thick, stable foam head and also because bacterial has protolytic, protolytic capabilities. Um, by bringing the, the wort up to 180 degrees Fahrenheit or even just a quick boil, um, that was a way of, uh, preventing any, you know, bacteria that may be on the, the, the husks of the, the barley or the wheat. Um, you're, you're kind of killing those off and you're only using the, the bacteria that you want in the fermentation. Schulteis, which is now part of Berliner Kindle Schulteis Brewery, uh, which occupies Berlin's uh, last remaining industrial brewery, had its own twist on the mixed production method. Let's hear about that. 
Yeah. So Schultheis is the one that people, you know, if you've ever read Michael Jackson's book, he just would, you know, wax poetically glow about how great the Schultheis Berliner Weiss was. And then Rodden Pattinson as well. They, they both pointed to this one as being the classic example of what a Berliner Weiss should be. And Schultheis used this classic mixed culture fermentation method, uh, although they, they had a little bit of a twist to it. Uh, what was unique with them is they would start with, again, unhopped uh, or hopped unboiled wort, very lightly hopped. Um, they targeted about five IBUs using a hop extract. And then they would pitch a mixed culture of top fermenting yeast and lactobacillus delbrachii in an open fermenter. But they would also at that same time add a small portion of three to six month old beer that was uh, blended in. And that was used to preserve the the characteristic. It was almost like making sourdough bread where you're, you're adding a small portion of the, the aged one uh, to kind of guide the flavor profile. Um, it would ferment three to four days, uh, kind of in, in a traditional ale fermentation temperature. Um, and then it would go into a secondary ripening uh, in their conditioning cellars where it would age from three up to ideally 12, 12 months or so. Um, at, again, you know, slightly warmer uh, temperatures, room temperature or so. Um, and then that's where it would get that that characteristic aroma and the, it would, the acidity would build as well. So say after 12 months, the beer would then be packaged where it was uh, croissant with one day old fermenting beer. And they would also add another fresh pitch of lactobacillus delbrachii at bottling. Um, the beer is bottled then. They would uh, bottle condition it, say, four weeks or so. Uh, and then it was ready to drink once it left the brewery. Um, but what's unique about, about the, the Schulteis is that uh, not only had this beer been aged for an extremely long time and it was only three to three and a half percent alcohol, uh, people that really were big fans of this style would keep these bottles, say, for one to two more years, you know, in a cellar or something, because they knew that the beer would continue to develop over time. And that's where it really got its, you know, estuary fruitiness and acidity and very, you know, that fine, fragrant, uh, fragrant aroma that it was known for. Talk about some of the challenges that come along with the classical mixed production method. Yeah. And, you know, with this classical method that, you know, the purists said produced the, you know, the, the best version, um, there's a reason why these other methods were developed. And it's because it also came with a lot of problems. Inconsistency is a big thing. It, you know, you're dealing with a mixed culture of fermentation. Uh, it's really hard to keep a stable mixed culture going uh, generation over generation over generation. That's why you see with like Schultheis addressing that and, and adding back older beers and also repitching uh, fresh bacteria at bottling. Uh, that was definitely a problem, inconsistency. Uh, and then, you know, the variability uh, with carbonation levels. You're, you're dealing with Brett, which was not at the time very well understood uh, at the turn of the century. And so over carbonation was, was definitely an issue. Um, um, and that's why you see in the, in the old pictures, they have these massive glasses because they knew that the bottles, uh, generally when they pour them in the glass would just foam up like crazy. And so you needed this oversized glass. I almost looked, some of them look like dog bowls or like just giant chalices that you'd see were just completely, you know, like a, a head of a cabbage inside of it, you know, um, so overcarbonation was it was definitely an issue, and that uh, clearly was addressed through the glassware. But uh, you knew that was a problem all the time. And then reproducibility uh, again with just mixed culture and the variability of Brett, it's really hard. And I can speak from experience that it's really hard to reproduce beers when you're you're dealing with all these different organisms that behave differently and, and ferment and reproduce at different rates. So uh, reproducibility was was definitely an issue. Um, but you know. The flip side of that, you know, for modern day craft brewers is that's also 
people view that as a positive, um, having different, uh, versions, you know, and, and experimenting with different breadths and, and different levels of acidity, um, you know, how the flavor evolves over time, uh, people, you know, embrace that these days. And so I think there's also a lot of opportunities with this classical production method because of, you know, the unknowns and then the variabilities and stuff like that. So, uh, that's why I, you know, one of the reasons that we focus on the, the, the classic mixed culture method. And, and I think where it's really exciting and, and there's a lot of different ways you can take the style. Brewers take very different approaches when they attempt to brew styles like this. Some people value authenticity above all else. Others are more concerned with optimizing certain flavors. And of course, anyone has to consider what is realistic given their equipment and resources. How did August Shell first approach the prospect of brewing Berliner Weiss? Yeah. Um for us, you know, it was really based on in who we are as a brewery, and that's what we use to kind of guide ourselves in a, in our journey of making Berliner Weiss. And and we are a traditional brewery. That's something we're very proud of. And and so for us, making it the tradi- traditional mixed culture way uh, was the way we were going to go about doing it. Um, and that's not to say that the other methods are, are right or wrong. Uh, and I think that's that's a great thing about Berliner Weiss is it can be. Uh, a lot of different things depending on what you want it you can you know we we age our beers one two three years um and it's almost more wine like champagne like or you can have a very um you know light refreshing kettle sour that is simple and, and easy to drink and and you know dumped with lots of fruit or hops and and crazy flavors um and that's you know, another way of taking it too. So, uh, Berliner Weiss can really cover a wide spectrum of flavors. And, and even if going back to what traditional levels of acidity were, uh, that beer was meant to be drank fresh. It was a refreshing, you know, workman's beer, uh, low alcohol, lightly acidic. It was just an everyday drinking, you know, drinking man champagne, you could say. So, uh, I think Berliner Weiss can be a lot of different things and it all depends on what you want it to be. Not every beer has to make Ron happy, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's true. Coming up. You get this weird stretch where the the primary culture starts to die off, and you get some of those autolysis flavors, and it's <laughs> you start to sweat a little bit on uh, thinking you screwed some stuff up, but um, you just got to be patient, and that's when that's when the magic starts happening. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Sponsored by BSG, distributors of Gambrinus Malting, Canada's original small batch artisanal malt house. If you've been searching for the perfect malt that's not quite pale and not Munich, you're in luck. Gambrinus Vienna is the malt you've been looking for. This mellow kilned malt has a balanced, bready character with notes of honey, toffee, and caramel baked in. With a gorgeous golden color, it's ideal for adding depth without too much sweetness. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. Get to know Proximity Malt. 
We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. Shout out to Continental, a global supplier of brewery hoses. Their Extreme Flex Beverage Transfer Hose features pretzel-like flexibility for those tight bend connections. Raise a glass to its easy, clean cover with a finish almost as smooth as your beer. Click the link in the show notes to find a distributor near you. I really hope you listen to what I'm about to say because I'm spending my own money to say it. Most listeners think this podcast is my full-time job, but I actually spend most of my waking hours improving the Lupulin Exchange, which I launched in 2014. I hope that like this show, the exchange has been helpful to you. Would you do me a favor? Buy your next box of hops on the Lupulin Exchange and let me know how I can make the experience even better. I answer every support ticket personally, and I'd love to hear from you. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Louis is holding a yeast symposium April 20th. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River April 21st and 22nd. The District Carolina Spring Social is April 29th at Beer Study Durham. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 9th. District Michigan's Summer Social is July 8th at Fitzgerald Park and Grand Ledge. Master Brewers has teamed up with ASBC to put on a two-day raw materials symposium August 3rd and 4th in Bloomington, Minnesota. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. Back to the show. You guys are using Cypress tanks at August Shell, and uh, that's probably not the first thing that comes to mind for most brewers who set out to make Berliner Weiss. Where did that concept come from? Yeah, uh, so our, our program is definitely unique um, in the fact that we all of our beers aged in, in what we now refer to as fooders, but they were our Cypress wood lagering tanks. Uh, we have 10 of these 
big, beautiful tanks. They're 140 barrels each. Uh, and they were built inside the brewery in 1936. Uh, they were built by Dunk Tank Works out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Dunk Tank, like the, uh, the the Dunk Tank we associate with. But they were, uh, you know, we're a lager beer brewery. We were making American lagers. And so they were Cypress because Cypress doesn't have the flavor contribution that oak does. Uh, and it's also extremely resistant to decay, which is probably the reason we're still able to use these tanks today. Um, but they were also pitch lined and because we were trying to, you know, keep that flavor out of our regular lager beers. And, you know, when it came time to kind of shift focus and like, all right, we're going to make sour beers. I, I really drew my inspiration from Rodenbach. Uh, they're similar size tanks. If anyone's ever seen pictures of them, they're, they're absolutely beautiful. And, but I, I think a lot of that, you know, classical mixed culture fermentation method is very similar to what a, a Flanders red is like uh, being produced at Rodenbach. Uh, although, you know, different malt bills and, and slightly different uh, target outcomes. Uh, that's kind of how I approach this with trying to use these wooden tanks. And it was a, a, a massive um, undertaking trying to get these tanks back into into usable production. But uh, it was definitely a pet project that was, was quite a bit of fun. Um, when we first started, these tanks had been empty for over 20 years and they were extremely dried out. I could literally stick my hands, uh, slide my fingers through the gaps in some of the staves. It was, they were in tough shape, but, um, with consulting some advice from a, a local Cooper here in Minnesota, um, gave us some pointers on what to do. And slowly over the course of, uh, the first one took about a year, <laughs> um, to, to restore, we finally got it to, to hold, uh, to hold liquid. And then we had them dry ice blasted to remove that wax lining that I talked about, um, to expose that wooden surface. I really wanted to have that exposed wood because we wanted to, to create that microflora environment of that, you know, we weren't looking for a, a, a sanitary surface and wood was also very traditionally used in the, in the older method. So, uh, again, trying to be, uh, traditional in, in using the wood, but also using a piece of our history in a completely new and, and different way than they were originally intended for. So you didn't do the entire cycle in the Cypress tanks. You had, you had to put some other equipment into service for this project as well, right? Yeah. So the way we do it, um, where these wooden tanks were, were, were kind of in an abandoned cellar. And so when we started off uh, making the beers, we kind of had to use a, a hybrid method of, of the Baroque method and the, the traditional mixed culture method. And that was because we didn't have, um, we had two stainless steel tanks in there that we weren't using uh, in addition to the wooden tanks, but they were not big enough to ferment the whole batch of beer in it. So um, I thought it would be interesting to, just use one of them to do that pure culture lactic fermentation. Uh, and then we would ferment the other half in one of our regular ale tanks. And then we would blend the two uh, into our wooden tanks, but we were not sterilizing either one of them. We were just, uh, it's almost like making a massive lactic acid pitch from half of the batch and then blending that in um, into the wooden tanks. And that's uh, at that blending, we would then pitch Britannomyces. Um, from there, we would go through an extended secondary maturation. Uh, the beer would continue to acidify over time. The bread would start to dry it out. We'd watch the gravity drop and, and the, the uh, flavor and aroma development. And it was all dependent on when the pH, total acidity, and gravity would all kind of stabilize. And then the flavor would, would get to uh, a place that we liked, you know, based on the acidity and also the aroma. Um, from there, we would go back into that uh, single stainless steel tank that we had um and that's when we would uh, use that for a, a bottle conditioning tank we would pitch fresh yeast and sugar and then it was all or I shouldn't say it was <laughs> it is all then hand bottled uh where it undergoes a, a bottle conditioning 
All right, that's pretty cool. Well, let's dig into the details a little bit. So uh, starting off from the brew house, anything special with the grist or with mashing? Yeah, so we use, um, you know, say for just a, a traditional um, version, we we use a, a high portion of wheat in all of our recipes, well, most of our recipes, um, as that was traditional. And, and in Berlin, back in kind of its heyday, they would use uh, bread making wheat, something that was extremely high in protein. So we've actually uh had a wheat malt uh chit wheat malt custom made for us that uh is about 14 and percent protein and it goes through a, a two-day uh germ process so highly under modified and high high protein content and that's really to um working on the foam preserving the foam but we go through a a, a three-step mash uh, 140 degrees 165 uh, then 172 Um, very short we don't want to uh, dry the beer out too much although um, as i get more and more into it i think actually drying the beer out is beneficial um, and i can get into that a little more later but um, and we always do a decoction mash. We have the capability at a brewery. Uh, that was something I know it's, it's heavily debated on whether it's beneficial or not, but, uh, it was traditionally done. And I think for a beer that you're going to age for two years, uh, you know, an extra 20, you know, minutes, half hour in the brew house is, is nothing in the grand scheme of things. So we always do, uh, you know, a, a 10 minute, 20 minute decoction mash, depending on the beer. Um, but with that, uh, usually with that high portion of a under modified wheat we do have some lowering issues so uh, a lot of rice hulls in the louder ton and, and i usually uh, uh i'm not anybody's friend in the brew house during that day so um it's always a challenge in the brew house but uh we do not boil so you know you're saving some time that way as long as you can get run it off in a, in a fairly uh reasonable amount of time but uh, one of the things that's unique to us being in Minnesota, uh, this happened from experience. We've now gone to a one minute, we call it a kettle royal uh, roll, sorry, um, where the, one of the early batches we did, it was in the middle of winter. It was extremely cold and uh, our kettle is split over two levels in our brew house. And the it was same, I don't know, negative 10 that day. It was really cold. So you just couldn't couldn't get it above 180 even? Well, we thought the temp probe was in the middle of the kettle. Uh, The bottom bottom of the kettle never got above 180. And I mean, the next day that beer was just rancid. It was the most (laughs) foul smelling rotten cheese you've ever smelled. So we dumped it and and we changed it to, all right, we're going to do a one minute kettle roll just to make sure that we're uh, at sterilization temp. So uh, we bring it up to 212, roll the kettle, and then we hold it for 20 minutes just for uh, sterilization. We very minimal hopping, you know, targets always four to five IBUs. Uh, we have two different lactic acid strains that we use, lactobacillus strains that we use. And so depending on what we're trying to achieve, uh, we can adjust that, that bitterness um, up or down. And we just use uh, hop extract because, again, we're not boiling. Um, it's just it's very easy to dial in our IBUs. And it's such a, a minimal contribution to the flavor profile. I mean, it's basically none. So uh, to, to hit your IBUs and know that you're going to get to a, a desired acid level i think that's that um is very beneficial once the beer is is uh finished we uh where we started off first was inside the brewery well, uh, hey before we jump into that talk about i noticed you said you do a ph adjustment um oh, yeah. in the brew house there uh talk about that a little bit because that, that seems a little interesting especially given what's about to happen yeah, so uh, once we get over the kettle, we do a pH adjustment, and this comes from experience and, and also talking with uh, Kurt Marshall and, and um, some of the historical data. Uh, we use 
a, a lactobacillus brevis strain that has is extremely protolytic and it just destroys foam. And some some of our early beers, uh, the foam stability was not very great. And so he, he recommended doing a pH adjustment to bring it below 4.7 pH. And that gets it out of that protolytic range and, and really helps to preserve the foam. So we, we actually do it twice. We adjust in the kettle and it seems to, by the time we bring it over the whirlpool, it, it wants to buffer back. So we always double check it once it's in the whirlpool. And if we have to adjust it again, we will uh, adjust it, to try to make sure that we're below 4.7 pH. And we just use regular lactic acid. It's not very much. It does not uh, contribute at all to the flavor, but that a little bit of an adjustment of pH bringing from say five three down to four seven makes a huge difference in the, in the foam stability of the final product. All right, so uh, tell us what the fermentation looks like. Yeah, so uh, when the we cool the beer down, uh, we cool it down to regular ale fermentation temperatures, and then we have to move it out to our sour facility. We built uh, trying to separate the whole the you know separate the two from. Um, any potential risk of cross contamination. So we actually pump it into a tanker truck and bring it across town to our sour facility where we offload it. And that's where we pitch our mixed culture fermentation early on. Like, um, we used to do separate fermentation tanks, but we just had a lot of issues with keeping our lactic acid tank free of, of ale yeast, <laughs> you know, it's the opposite of what you think. And so we've gone into doing hundred percent mixed culture fermentation and we split it into, um, we now have new tanks that we were able to do the entire fermentation uh, is a, in a mixed fermentation, um, is it within one fermenter, um, fermentation is, you know, low so to mid when you were splitting it before, so was it, were you just splitting it 50, 50 or how, how was that? Yeah, it's it's evolved over the years. When we first started off, it was a 50-50 split. We would ferment half with just nail yeast, half with just lactic acid bacteria. Uh, then we went to almost an 80-20 uh, because we had these transport totes that we could just do, um, you know, it's about 20% of the wort that we would just pitch bacteria in, and then the rest was in that, that uh, bigger tank. And now that we have tanks that we can actually ferment the entire batch in for primary fermentation will do 100% now where it's just a, a mixed culture fermentation. Offloading from the truck, we will pitch in line um, yeast and bacteria, and we will do, say, five to six days fermentation, uh, 68 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you know, just a regular ale fermentation. And after that time, the, the beer has a very, very light acidity. Uh, I mean, the pH is barely below a normal beer pH at, at the end of fermentation. Uh, and it's pretty bland. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a not exciting beer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you're just you're kind of building the base at that point. So from there, we will transfer it into our cypress wood tanks. Uh, and in line, we will pitch Britannomyces. And that's really where the, the, the flavor begins to develop over time. Um, we use two primary strains. Uh, one is a Britannomyces bruxellensis, and the other one is a Britannomyces clausenii. And both of those came from closed East German Berliner Weiss breweries. Um, both have very different flavor characteristics. And so depending what we're trying to accomplish, uh, we'll pitch one or two or both of those strains. And this is where, you know, think time really slows down. Um, there's, it seems like almost, you know, for a month, nothing really happens. Uh, it's once the Brett, you know, which is notoriously slow acting, once that kind of gets acclimated and starts doing it work, starts breaking down those dextrins, it's going to start liberating some simple sugars for the, the bacteria to start working on. Um, 
bacteria also works off of, uh, you know, autolysis. So you get this weird stretch where the, the primary culture starts to die off and you get some of those autolysis flavors and it's, <laughs> you start to sweat a little bit on, uh, thinking you screwed some stuff up, but, um, you just gotta be patient. And that's when, that's when the magic starts happening. You'll start seeing the gravity start to drop. Then the pH, the starts to drop and then your acidity start to building. And that's when, you know, you know that the bread and the bacteria are starting to work together. Um, and it, it really depends from there on, on what kind of the base beer is and what we're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, our, our shortest beer we've ever done is six months. So our longest, I'm uh, looking at a tank here that now has been in the, been in here uh, for coming up on two and a half years. Uh, and it's still got some time to go yet. So it really depends on, on what we're trying to accomplish. And, and again, going back to that variability of pitching rates and stuff uh that also determines how long the beer is going to age inside inside one of our tanks wow okay and you i know you said you bottle condition do you do you also do any draft with this as well or is it only bottled product yeah so we do everything we do uh draft or bottles is bottle condition uh wanted to be as traditional as possible and i also think that um having that re-fermentation in the bottle just adds an, another little you know layer of complexity and i think that really helps with the that tight foam that you get um, from a naturally conditioned beer. So when the beer that, uh, you know, a tank is ready that we, we like that flavor profile, we will transfer it back into stainless. And then we do it in batches where we'll, uh, we'll pitch um, a fresh, uh, fresh sugar. We just use dextrose. Um, and then we use a bottle conditioning yeast, um, because our beers age so long, most of that regular, uh, the primary, uh, fermentation yeast is, is dead. And so to, to rely solely on Britannomyces to recarbonate a beer, I don't think would be um, very reproducible. So trying to take that out of the equation. And so we always pitch uh, Lalaman CBC one, which works great. We dose both of them in line. They're hand bottled still. Uh, we cork and cage all of our bottles and then we, we hold it for, for um, now we've gone up to two months of, of bottle conditioning. Uh, the, the beer is basically fully carbonated within two weeks, but it just seems like that the beer gets a little bit of bottle shock <clears throat> and that if you give it two months, that it really kind of um, works out its little weird uh, flavors. It kind of goes through like a mini, we call it the dirty sock phase where bread kind of kicks up and it kicks off these like kind of weird flavor so works through that you can um if there's any issues with with uh, thp it's kind of that soggy cheerio flavor uh we, we try and store them very warm um you know 75 degrees or warmer uh and it, it can work through the, those those off flavors and uh sometimes we have to set on longer but uh we've gone to now where we, we age them for two months minimum awesome Okay, so you've now been doing this for something like seven years, I think. It's a pretty mm -hmm. complicated process with a lot <laughs> of opportunities for surprises or disaster. What have been some of the biggest challenges or scariest moments? Oh, <laughs> uh, there's been a lot. Uh, we've definitely dumped a lot of beer. And I think for anyone, and I think that goes you know, for any style of beer that you're making, if, if you know that the beer is bad, just dump it and move on. It's not worth trying to push a bad product on the consumers. I think that's only going to damage your reputation and especially for sour beers where it's, you're already starting off with a niche product and trying to introduce people to it. It's, uh, it's only going to hurt you, hurt you further. So we've had issues, um, you know, that we've, you know, there was one beer that, uh, found out we had a crack in, in one of the glycol jackets that uh, the, the batch was contaminated. So after a year we, we had to dump it. Um, I remember coming in one day after Christmas 
and uh, it was extremely cold in our cellar and five of the 10 tanks were leaking all at the same time because <laughs> oh, no. uh, uh, we, we were not uh, monitoring the humidity in our, in our cellar. Um, and so that was a, a day of just utter chaos and panic trying to get them to swell and rehydrate and stop the leaking. How, how did you do that? Uh, it's uh, a lot of hot water. Um, I have uh, a hoop driver and a hammer. So a lot of trying to drive down the hoops of the tanks to trying to get them to hold again. Um, we still have some of the original pitch from, from when they were pitch lined. So I'd use a torch and, and just jamming pitch inside of them, <laughs> trying to get it to stop. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a long, long process and definitely a labor of love uh, with all the things that we've had go wrong. Wow, and and like you said, you're all, you're you're trucking the wort over to a separate building. Uh, any unique challenges with that? How has that, has that been a big headache? <laughs> oh yeah, um, we first started in totes, and we would move uh, four totes at a time, and that was you know cleaning four separate tanks, and then we had to do two trips. So it was just like days of CIPing these tanks just to move it over you know the small portions at a time. We finally found like a, a bulk tank truck to work that also carries milk. And the, the driver assured us that those tanks were, or his truck would be absolutely clean. And when he showed up, uh, we unscrewed the cap and you could see this little trail of, of white liquid coming out of the tank. We're like, no, nope, oh, this man. is not going to work. <laughs> uh, so we've since gone to, we get the, the truck because uh, it's a kosher wash, which is a certified sterilized wash. Um, so that was a, a learning process too, with just transferring wort and, and, you know, the, the contamination risk that comes with that. So that's, that's been another learning curve as well with moving to offsite. That was Jace Marty here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check out the presentation that Jace gave at District Mid-South. I'll post a link in the show notes, or you can get there by typing Berliner into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. And don't forget, you have to be both a Master Brewers member and logged in to see all of the search results. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please... Let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. 